Welcome to the Theology Podcast. Anyway, you probably heard Tom in the background there. <laughs> Lynn, Lynn's, Lynn was taking some photographs of us for our website. So, Lynn, thank you for that. And uh, we were talking about whether or not we should pose or, <laughs> or just kind of let, let ourselves be uh, caught in action. Yeah, well, now, actually, we're just a bunch of posers. So <laughs> that's right, that's right. Speaking of posers, Glenn, what have you done to your beard? Nothing. <laughs> haven't trimmed it, haven't cut it, haven't done anything. Lynn, however... Ah, that's true. So Lynn has given you the Gimli. Yeah. So she's uh, braided Glenn's beard. And it looks... I, 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 it makes me want to grow mine out a bit and give it a try. I, you know what I want to do is the, fork, get, yeah. the forked beard yeah. with, you know, it's, you know, tucked in my belt. Uh, yeah, I, 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 that was what I originally started using as my role model. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. If you I could grow it out, I definitely would do that. It's a, it's a good look. And for, for all those people who will see a photograph of this, it's yeah, something yeah. worth doing with your beard to kind of break up, break up the mundane and show a little resistance to normal beardhood. That's right, normal beardhood. Like, I've got the normal beardhood. You've got the normal beardhood. I've got, <laughs> but we've got the, the truly admirable beardhood in, in Glen Sunshine. Anyway, uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm, I'm a pastor and a soon-to-be resident of Washington State. So in case you haven't heard the news out there in Pugcast land, I've accepted a call to, to uh, serve a church uh, in the uh, greater Portland area, Portland, Oregon, and uh, I'm actually gonna be on the Washington side of the river where the uh, slogan of the, of the city of Vancouver is uh, keep it normal. <laughs> keep it normal as yep. contrast to keep it weird or whatever they've got in Portland. Yeah, and in when I was at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, their unofficial motto was an alternative to reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what many people associate with Portland is an alternative re to reality. But anyway, uh, I'm, I'm a writer and uh, I've uh, taught philosophy and I've got a book coming out. And by, in fact, by the time this show is uh, available uh, in posts, uh, the book may actually be available. Wow. Uh, the guy, our friends at Canon Press are known for their speed at getting things done. So we've, we've written for other uh, publishing houses and, and, and those places can just take forever, but not Canon. Yeah, to put this in perspective, I've sort of assumed on the basis of the other books that I've done that when you submit it to a publisher, it will come out in one year. Yeah. yeah. In Canon, I submitted Slaying Leviathan in the second week of September, and it was out on Election Day. Yeah, yeah. That's, so six weeks approximately then. Yeah. So don't let them know that you have more edits to do because they will publish it right away. <laughs> well, they do have proof. They do have proofreaders and yeah. copy editors and all that kind of stuff. So you're not on your own. But anyway, um, so uh, enough about me. And uh, Tom, tell us about yourself. Ah, uh, Tom Price, uh, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. I teach both at a variety of places. Teach philosophy too. Um, and other things. <laughs> um, yeah, writing. I got some uh, works underway and just threw off a small article for the little magazine that the Cross Politic has put out, ah, too. Nice, nice, so uh, nice. get a little taste of that. Yeah. I think Glenn did something for that, too, so I'll pass it to Glenn. Right, right. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow to Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I've also got a ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries and work with a bunch of other people too. And you are a resident of the Iron Hills in the uh, western part of Middle Earth. and uh, <laughs> Well, the western with... side of the Connecticut <laughs> River anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, well, it's, it's, uh, it's your day, Glenn. And uh, I, I, this will be news to me. What are we talking about? <laughs> now, by, by the way, folks might think that we do a lot of prep. We don't. We just kind of each say what we're talking about, and then we just kind of roll with it. And uh, we're all good. We're all good. Thanks. So um, today I want to talk about barometers. Okay, uh, okay. And worldview. Ah, barometers and worldview. And okay. epistemology. Oh, wow, okay. And probably a few other things, knowing you guys. But, um, okay, so... I actually, before we get to the barometer, I want to start a little bit further back. Um, first of all, I, I just dropped the word epistemology. That's the branch of philosophy that deals with knowledge and truth. You know, well, how do we know things, all that sort of thing. Now, 
When you go through the Middle Ages, their concept of knowledge, their definition of knowledge, really was that it was something that was certain. Mm-hmm, okay. mm-hmm. It didn't, if it wasn't certain, it didn't really qualify mm-hmm. exactly as knowledge. And so that's sort of the first thing. They believe that knowledge is uh, that true truth, if you will, to use Schaefer's phrase, or truth with a capital T, is accessible to the human mind. Um, they believe that further that it is necessary, that you really need to have truth in society because any society that's not built on truth is built on a lie, and if it's built on a lie, it's going to collapse. We and see it, that happening right now. And, and it's worth noting that their conception of truth and, and reality is such that it's something more that we participate in rather than something that we construct. Right, right, right. Yeah. right. Yeah. Absolute truth or, or objective truth exists, and it exists outside of us. That's you know, right. It's not something that we make up. Now, the corollary to this ends up being that the best guide to the truth is the past. Oh, right, right. Because if you go to past civilizations that were <clears throat> successful, let's say Rome mm-hmm. or Greece or something like that, right. they had to have been built on a solid foundation of truth. They might not have known truth perfectly, but they did have a substantial understanding of truth. Therefore, you go to the past to find truth. Well, and you see this, of course, in political thought in Greece, you know, in Aristotle's politics, you know, in the Republic, Plato. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they cared about history and, because they believed that you could actually learn things. Right. And, and, and you see it in, even in the early church and the patristics all the way through the Middle Ages in the sense that they didn't look for what was new, per se. Anything new had to grow out of what you had for certain, and they were always looking at past sources as authoritative. Right. Right. And you see that all through the Middle Ages and even in the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole point of the Renaissance in many ways is to recover the truth that was known in the past. Right. Now, for a bunch of reasons that I'm not going to get into having to do with Renaissance magic theory and a bunch of other things, as you're moving into the 17th century, a lot of this stuff begins to be questioned. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this really is going to end up tying into the rise of the scientific revolution and so on. There, there are a bunch of different crises that occur intellectually during this period. But, uh, you know, well, let's just, let's just go to one of them. It would be the recovery of the thought of an ancient Greek sort of philosopher by the name of Pyrrho. Okay. Pyrrho was a radical skeptic. Mm-hmm. He didn't start out that way, but after going to India with Alexander the Great and encountering what one Indian philosopher I know refers to as the naked mystics there, mm-hmm. they convinced him that, you know, the Greeks believed that knowledge was at the foundation of reality. The Indian mystics believed that ignorance was. <laughs> and <clears throat> Pyrrho thought this was ridiculous, but he, when he got into debates with them, he discovered that they uh, pretty quickly destroyed him in the debates. <laughs> So he came back as a thoroughgoing skeptic, and his skepticism uh, was rediscovered during the Renaissance. Ironically mm-hmm. enough, the guy who, uh, who printed it uh, was a guy named Robert Estienne, who was also one of Calvin's publishers. <laughs> and so Pyrrhonical thought became a major deal in the early 17th century, and it created huge problems, because if you believe that knowledge is certain, what Pyrrho was sort of custom designed to do is to destroy any possibility of certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can think of Pyrrho as the toddler from hell. <laughs> um, what, 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 what he would do is... Chucky. Well, Chucky. Well, he, he would, he, he, you know, you, you would make a statement and he would basically do what the toddler does. Why? Mm-hmm. Why? Right, why? Right. Why? Why? And sooner or later, you would, you would, and usually sooner, you would get to a point where you were making your assertion on the basis of something that was assumed not proven. Right. And what that meant is it wasn't really certain because what if your assumption is wrong? Right. So, it, 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 like I said, it's designed to destroy certainty. And this ends up being a major problem in a society that believes that knowledge has to be certain. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you really want to understand Descartes, yeah. you have to understand him in terms of a response to Pyrrho. Right, right. His whole thing, I think, therefore I am, wasn't really about autonomy. What it was about was, can I find a starting point that is undoubtable, Right. that I can then use to build a, a system of knowledge. 
And, it, and even that solution wasn't entirely original. Right. You know, Augustine had Augustine a very had similar sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. Um, Augustine's response to the skeptics was really very much along those lines. And also, the, I think, the weakening of the conception of deity as necessarily good that was floating around after you saw a lot of the shifts in doctrine of God to, you know, basically could God, you know, could God be a deceiver? I mean, that's what, what right, we're, right. we're talking about. It, it, right. it, the, the questioning, the skepticism about the goodness of, 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 uh, of reality was right. at the heart of a lot of that. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to trace Descartes through a few steps here, and then we're going to take a jump into science, because okay. actually Descartes does some stuff with science too. Descartes starts with, I think, therefore I am. You know, right. um, and it really comes around from the question, what can I not doubt? One thing I can't doubt is that I can doubt. That's right. thinking, so right. something has to be doing it, therefore I am. Right. He then goes from there to say, okay, I exist. Now, I have a conception of a being we'll call God. Right. And this being is perfect. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is all of these things. I have never encountered such a being. Mm -hmm. So the question is, where did my idea of such a being come from? Right. The only possibility is it must have come from that being. Right. Because otherwise I, could, I couldn't even conceive of it. Right. So therefore, my existence proves God's existence. So we're, we're, we're dealing with the ontological argument. Right. It's essentially a variant on the ontological yeah. argument. Right. And, it, and it does differ from the Thomist argument. A lot of people confuse the two, but the Th Thomas's argument is sort of undeniability, which is, you know, there. I won't get into it now, but it is very different than what Descartes doing here. Um, I won't get into it, <laughs> but yeah. I just want, I want to qualify it at this well, point. Yeah. And, and you have to add that yeah. Descartes' point is not to prove God's existence. That's Descartes' right. point is the next one. Yeah, yeah. Using this kind of ontological argument for God, his next point is, therefore, clear, what he calls clear and distinct ideas mm -hmm. must be true, mm -hmm. guaranteed by the truthfulness of God himself. Okay. And God is underwriting the truthfulness, in a sense, of the human being to be the rational ground for its own reality. Right. And right. strangely with Descartes is which I won't get into at this moment, but there's an actually redefinition of reason as will. I'll get into that a, li a little yeah, bit I'd later. Yeah, i hear that, yeah. yeah. Well, now, once he has clear and distinct ideas, it's off to the races. Mm -hmm. Because anything that Descartes decides is a clear and distinct idea must be true, therefore. Right, right. And so he develops what, he, in his discourse on method, he develops what he considers to be a completely airtight, deductive way of explaining everything that exists. Including the, okay. including the fact that Aristotle established that women have fewer teeth? Well, yeah. I don't, <laughs> I'm think, a I, I don't, I don't, I don't think he went there. Okay. <laughs> well, he was reacting to Aristotle in some ways. Okay. So, now, what, what's worth noting here is that he is maintaining the old definition of knowledge as certainty, but he is getting rid of the idea that knowledge is found in the past. Uh -huh. It isn't necessarily yeah, found right, in the past. Right, right. It's found in clear and distinct ideas and deductive logic in the present on Descartes' own premises. And yeah. it isn't participatory so much as it is actually something going on in the subject. Yeah, that's the key. And, yeah. and the shift to the human subject, and that's where we'll get into the issue yeah. of yeah. will. It's also, yeah. it's also very much a, uh, almost a platonic system. It's all built around the mind. Yeah. Now, one of the things that Descartes believed is, um, and moving into the realm of science, is he believed that the, de the basic definition of matter was extension. Right. And what that means is that it takes up volume. Right, right. Okay. So if matter takes up volume, then, well, it's impossible to have a vacuum. Yeah. Because a vacuum has volume but nothing in it. Right. So he's going to argue that vacuums don't exist. Which brings us to Spinoza later. Not mm -hmm. Spinoza. Uh, Gassendi. No, no, isn't it Pascal? Well, ultimately Pascal. Right, mm -hmm. right. But you, you have another thinker in the time called Gassendi who was heavily influenced by Greek atomism, mm -hmm. who believed that everything in the universe consisted of atoms and the empty space between them. So Gassendi believes in vacuums, okay. and he and Descartes are arguing about this. Okay. Now, this is where Pascal comes in, and this... this Pascal is really interesting on a whole lot of different levels. Yeah. Um, let's start off all around genius. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. Literary, uh, scientific, mathematical, philosophical, theological. Right. Uh, 
the, the guy's one of these utterly astounding people that that um, you, you know it's kind of hard to believe. You know, when, he, wasn't he involved with some kind of calculating machine? Yeah, 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 yeah he invented yeah. the calculator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah he, his father was a tax collector, so <laughs> at age fourteen, he invented <laughs> a mechanical computer yeah. to help his father with the tax rolls. You know, it's a so- we can thank him for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, my, my, my theory is that he would have been a small government guy because <laughs> yeah. well, he was an Augustinian guy. Yeah, that's right. Well, it, yeah, it, it, it's sort of a sobering idea to think that when Pascal was my age. He'd been dead for 23 years. <laughs> um, right, right. Now, one of the things, but again, he's he's important for a variety of things. One of the more amusing ones is that, well, he was he was a very deeply religious man, an Augustinian Catholic. Yeah, yeah. Some so people a considered him yeah, 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 Some yeah. people considered him kind of a crypto Calvinist, but. You know, we got to do a show on the Jansenists someday. I, I would love to do a show yeah. on the Jansenists. And They're I really think more fully bunch. on Pascal. Yeah, yeah I think right. it's... Okay. What, yeah. Uh, during a period of backsliding for Pascal, one of his friends <laughs> came to him and said, who's a gambler, and he said, I want to know how to figure out what, how yeah, to, how yeah, to bet better. he was huge better. on probabilities, wasn't he? Well, and, that, yeah. and that's it. Pascal invents probability theory to, to help his friend with gambling. <laughs> now, now, so taxation and gambling. Now, I just <laughs> have to stop here because it's on my mind. That's that, why he's an Augustinian. That's right. He's an Augustinian. Before, and I'm, I don't want to go in this direction, but I want to throw it out there while it's on my mind. Now, there, there's an Australian writer, and I can't think of his name, but he wrote a story. I know Ray Fiennes was in the movie about it, but it's pretty much about a seminary student from Oxford who ends up loving gambling. Okay. And he meets a girl on the boat who loves gambling too. He falls in, in, in love with her, and she says, "But doesn't it trouble you to to want to gamble all the time? And you're a, you're a minister." And he goes through Pascal's argument in wager, <laughs> and that he uses this to underwrite his argument for if God this will have me you wager a bet of a on your existence. This See, reminds me of a friend of mine who's a pastor. You you guys might know who is now planning a church, but was a card counter, a Christian card counter. <laughs> That would uh, go into casinos and 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 he was dealing with tens of hun- and hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, you know, at blackjack. It's a fabulous story. We got to have him on the show sometime. Yeah. I don't want to mention his name because he re- he needs to speak for himself. Uh, <laughs> Philip <laughs> Carey was the writer. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> well, actually, let, let, let's stop at Pascal's wager because I was going to get there sooner or later anyway. Uh, a probability ends up being really important to the whole rest of the show, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Depending on what you guys do, but um, again, the, <laughs> the, the some fries with some Cajun spice display fries. The, the Pascal's wager. Okay, what it says basically is, all right, you're in a situation where you have to place a bet on the existence of God. Right, right. If you bet that he does not exist and he doesn't, you win nothing. Mm -hmm. If you bet that he does not exist and he does, you lose everything. If you bet that he does exist and he doesn't, you lose nothing. If you bet that he does exist and he does, you win everything. The only logical bet is that God exists. Right. Every other option out there is, is a loser. Mm-hmm. That's the only possibility of winning. Now, everybody stops there. It turns out that is not the end of the wager in the pensée. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the rest of it. I've read the pensée, but I can't yeah. remember the rest of it. The rest of it is you have to place a bet. The only logical bet is that God exists, but that's the one bet you are incapable of placing. Hmm. Interesting. So he's making the argument from, from, from total depravity? He's or, an Augustinian. Yeah. Right, right. You can't do that. All you can do is right. to seek grace. Yes, that's right. Mm. Everybody stops at the wrong part. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you'll notice it's an argument based on, well, gambling, on probability, and all of that. Yeah. Right. Now, now, the way this enters the bigger picture, were you going to say something, Tom? Oscar and Lucinda is the name of the work. <laughs> anyway, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so, so rewind, go back to Tom's statement uh, two minutes back, and you'll find out why he had to insert that. But okay. it will complement what Glenn is saying in movie form or book form if you're the reader. <laughs> okay, so let, let's, let's move ahead then. Right. Vacuums. Remember? Yeah. Empty space. Is it possible? Yeah. Well, it turns out that in this period, and this is worth its own discussion as well, in this period, 
there wasn't a really sharp connection between science and technology. Yeah, okay. Technology yeah. was just sort of practical stuff. Right. That they didn't really do hoi a lot. Hoi polloi. That's, <laughs> well, they that's didn't, for the little people. Yeah, they didn't really do a lot with using using science to develop new technologies. That right. is actually going to be a later thing. Hmm. However, there was an interesting technology that developed during this period called the barometer. Hmm. Oh, okay. So now okay. with the barometer Now we're getting in. with the barometer. Okay. And the way you make a barometer is you get a stopped tube, like, say, a test tube. Um, and let's do it. You could do this with water, but it has to be over 30 feet long. Let's do it with mercury. Okay. A little, about a yard. Yeah. A little less than a yard. You fill the test tube with mercury. Okay. You put your finger on the end. This is before OSHA. <laughs> you put your finger on the end of it. You turn it upside down and put what will be the open end into a bowl of mercury. And then you take your finger away. And what ends up happening is the mercury drops out of the test tube for a certain distance into the bowl. And there's empty space left on top. Interesting. Yeah. And the question is, what is that empty space? Mm-hmm. Now, they knew about barometers. They knew that barometers had something to do with weather. Right. But they didn't really know for sure what that empty space up top was. Gassendi says, it's a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Descartes says, no, 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 it takes up space. It's got to be matter. So what has to be happening is that the, as the mercury drops, mercury vapor or perhaps tiny particles of glass fill up that space. Because it's, it, it's right. space, it's got to be material. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so how do you solve this? Pascal comes along. <laughs> Pascal takes a barometer. He waits for a nice day where there's going to be no changes in the weather. He measures the barometer at the bottom of a mountain. He then puts it on a cart and takes it up to the top of the mountain, measures it again, and then he brings it back down and measures it again. And what he discovers is that... As you go higher up the mountain, the barometer falls. As you come back down, the barometer rises. Pressure is the yeah. difference, right? And so he says, all right, how do you explain this? What Gassendi would say mm-hmm. is that the barometer, the weight of that column of mercury is being held up by the weight of the air. And as you go up, there's less air. You got gaps between the air molecules. There's less air. It's just simply a shorter stack of it. Right, right. So it's going to put less pressure on it, so the barometer is going to go down and then back up. Descartes can come clue something together to explain this, but it doesn't follow logically from his theory. Yeah. So Pascal's conclusion is Gassendi is probably right. It is not definitive, it is not certain, but it is the best available explanation. It is probably right, and probably is good enough to call it knowledge. Interesting, interesting. So what he does, you know, Descartes, like I said, you know, if you think about the medieval idea, uh, truth is absolute and found in the past, Descartes goes halfway. He says truth is absolute, but it isn't found in the past. Pascal goes all the way and gets rid of both. Truth is n- not absolute, it's only probable, and it's not necessarily found in the past. In fact, we can actually improve the state of our knowledge. We can learn more. We just learned that vacuums probably exist. So and this movement, by the way, is known as probabilism. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, let's think about this a little bit. So we have an, we, truth and knowledge are equated. That's where we start. Now, is that something that was uh, characteristic of every thinker prior to the Christian era? No. I mean, we have, we have evidence that that's not the case. There were skeptics back then. We also had um, uh, Aristotle who yeah. told us that there were certain kinds of things, there were certain things we could know that uh, didn't lend themselves to the kind of, of certainty that we would associate, say, with mathematics. That's right, yeah. So, you know, what Aristotle would say in terms of when we're talking about human beings and, and how you, you know, sort of study, you know, the best way to live, you know, happiness, yeah. uh, close is, can, be, can be good enough. So, like, close mm-hmm. is good enough and hand grenades and, you know, <laughs> horseshoes and, and happiness, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. So, so you do have that, but that's, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talk, here we're talking about phys- physical phenomena. And yeah, yeah. And you know, there's, 
I, I've just got to pause here. There's a, a joke that was told to me by a physicist. He said a, a physicist, a mathematician, and an engineer were at a homecoming game. And the homecoming queen was on the other side of the field, and they were at, at the opposite goal line. And they said to him, okay, you can go each step of the way, you can go halfway to her, and whoever reaches her right. can take her out. I know where this is the going. The mathematician says <laughs> it's impossible. Right, right. The physicist does this three or four times and realizes he can't get there. He quits. The engineer keeps going, eventually grabs her, kisses her, and takes her out. It's, which is so unusual for an engineer. Right. Well, and, and, and when they asked him how he did it, it was impossible. He said, well, there's a such thing as good enough for practical purposes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, I, this is maybe where the engineer has his feet on the ground. Zeno, of course, you know, mm -hmm. back in ancient Greece. Hey, thanks a lot. Great. Thank you, Ethan. Um, I'll have one a little later. We're going to do a second show, so... Yeah. <laughs> I want to have. I want to be able to speak clearly by the time we finish the signature. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like he's already had a. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you can. Are you going to get another hooker? <laughs> she is, she is and, and on by tap. The way, Thomas Hooker was a. It was a Puritan divine. Who founded the city of Hartford. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. It all comes so, back around. <laughs> yeah, so as the show degenerates. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, the, the issue, the, the, this issue of probabilism has got huge implications. But before we, we look at where this heads... Um, were you going to say more about the Greek philosophers? or No, no. I did want to think about it a little bit uh, in terms of this idea that you know, Pascal covers himself in the sense this is probably the case. It may turn out that vacuums don't exist after all. The current state of things, when we think about dark matter and so forth, there's a lot of speculation concerning whether or not there is a, any such thing as a vacuum. Now, we can talk about an absence of air, but yep. but do we live in a universe where there actually is space? This is something that I th I've, I've heard, and I'm not a physicist. So if a physicist is listening to the show and wants to correct me, please do. But the idea is that is that we really well think about gravity waves. Mm -hmm. Gravity waves can only be you know can can only exist if there's some kind of con Continuum. A, a, media, a medium through which they're traveling. That's it. Well, That's the that, point. That's well, the point. there was an, you know, I remember Tom Torrance's famous work. I mean, he, he did a lot of stuff with uh, science and, and theology at his later stages. One of the things he was uh, interested in showing is just how radical the incarnation changed the conception from a container view of space, which was very yep. classical. Um, to a whole different way of conceiving it, which his argument was led the grounds to an actual proper understanding of science in its healthy sense, mm -hmm. as we would understand it today. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, yeah, there, there are radical revisions. And also, of course, you know, we don't want to th throw out, I mean, a lot, a lot of science at this time and, and epistemology was tied to very, very strongly to spiritual matters, sure. theological, but also sometimes what we consider mysticism or even a cult. Well, you know what, uh, and yeah. here, here's something that people should, should know. Mm -hmm. Having lived in Cambridge, having lived in a yeah. place like yeah. Cambridge in the UK <laughs> yeah. or Oxford, Oxford and Madison, I've known a number of world-class scientists, yeah. physicists, who are believers. Mm -hmm. And these are, the, these are in the George Washington Carver kind of school of my thought. These guys would pray before they went into the lab. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I knew guys at MIT. I knew guys yeah. at Harvard. Yeah. And it's second and third tier minds. Yeah. You can't accept that. Yeah. It's, yeah. The, it's, the, it's, the, it's the guys at the highest level who I think are the most open to the, to the things that, the, that they can't fully understand and explain grass mysticism you could say yeah, yeah. James well, Clerk Maxwell who's yeah. considered the third most important physicist in history after Einstein and Newton was a solid firm we would describe him as an evangelical Presbyterian. Yeah, and that's uh, uh, Tom Torrance writes a lot on him in particular. And then uh, 12th century figures, different, different figures uh, throughout time that really set the stage for, again, I say, the healthy understanding uh, of science. Be before we go on, though, I mean, so something 
curious here because I think sometimes, I mean, epistemology is a wide field and it gets very tricky at certain points because it can get hairy or fuzzy, as the the Cambridge people used to say. Um, Because, I mean, a lot of times, for example, people have tried to move with a lot of the shifts that came about because of these insights. And then they saw that all epistemology had to follow a certain pattern. For example, you know, you're, you know, like Will, Will, William Lane Craig, you know, the probabilistic arguments right, for right. the existence of God. And I think there, I still think I'm, I'm a classical uh, uh, theologian and uh, and someone who really appreciates a classical tra- tradition of apologetics. And I really think that there are plenty of arguments that are not just mere probabilistic, probabilistic, sorry, that's not my beer speaking, Um, but actually are grounded in in reality and can be, uh, can be logically uh, inferred from sound argument. Um, But on the other hand, when you get to the kind of wide range particularities of the material creation in particular, and then some arguments that kind of try to lift out of that, I think the probabilistic arguments are, are very uh, valuable. They're, there's a certain value to them, but you can't, you, you can't reach the kind of faith certainty which I think grace gives in that case. And that's always been an argument, I think, is that, well, you could be wrong. You know, probabilistically, you may be right, but you could be wrong. There's a, there's a gap, and is it a blind leap, as the Kierke, you know, the right. certain type of Kierkegaardian would argue? Or is there something to faith that you're, you're actually, you're, you're, you know, you're stepping into? To well, this, is, this, this, by the way, is, a, is, a, is maybe a subject for a show sometime. Yeah. Um, many of our listeners probably uh, think about approaches to, a, to uh, apologetics as falling into one of two categories. Yeah. You know, either a presuppositionalist approach, you know, a Vantilli and that kind of That's thing. That's right. Or something along the lines of William Lane Craig. That's uh, right. Probabl- probabilist, which is, is not That's the classical right. approach. That's right. But uh, oftentimes yeah. those two parties are fighting against each other yeah. you know, in a sort of modernist sort of framework yeah. and don't have any real sense of what was going yeah. on in yeah. the early church. Yeah, and, and, and it's interesting because, I mean, one of the things you get when you study the history of the, the kind of arguments for the existence of God is, is you get a different sense than the way we typically present them today as sort of inductive cases for a worldview kind of stuff. I mean, one of the things, I mean, Aquinas at the beginning of the Summa and even the uh, of Summa Theologia and, and uh, Contra Gentiles, um, one of the things he's arguing is, okay, he, the first thing he is saying, uh, he, of course, scripture text is because we all know there is a God. Um, his, his point may be put another way. We all know we owe our existence and being to something, some source, some source that has the capacity to provide for everything else. So his arguments for the existence of God then are cutting down the chain rationally of what would have to be the case in order for it to be the source of everything. It's not a question, oh, wait, can I argue that, that somehow the question of God is, is at stake? No, the question is, what is God, what is God like? Not, not the question about, is there a God? If there is anything at all, there has to be a God. Well, there is something, so therefore there has to be a God. I mean, that's his, that's his, his, his argument. So what he's doing in those early steps is he's actually shaving down what must be characteristic rationally um, of the source of all things if we're going to account for it to be the source of everything. We know there's a source. What must rationally be true of it if it is the source? That's what he's looking at. Yeah, and you, you see that in ancient Greek philosophy yeah. and, and it yeah. passes into the Christian tradition That's as well. That's right, yeah, yeah. So back to Pascal at a moment for yeah, now. Yeah, since, <laughs> uh, he's, he's a fascinating <laughs> guy. One, yeah. what, 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 I, what I think... Pascal inadvertently in doing this set the agenda for the frankly the entire modernist uh, program by solving the problem of Pirro oh by the way back to Pirro Pirro (laughs) was designed to destroy certainty Pascal says basically to Pirro or he would if Pirro were still (laughs) alive he says to him basically "Ah, you got me there I can't prove this certainly who cares yeah, you know this is most likely to be true, and if we find out later it's wrong, we'll adjust. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, he basically short circuits the entire Pyrrhonical argument, which is why Pyrrho is largely forgotten today. Hmm. Yeah. The the kinds of issue that he was there, the kinds of belief, the kinds of thought 
the epistemology that he was designed to destroy just simply is no longer accepted. We go with probability. This is just sort of the way we work. But this has got implications that go way beyond just sort of the philosophical. Again, the idea here, the implication of this is that, you know, people in the past may have had a good handle on truth, and that's fine, we can demonstrate that. But in all likelihood, we are going to be constantly improving on our knowledge because since it's only probable, we can always find ways of proving it more with more, a higher degree of probability or improving on it or expanding it or building on it or whatever. To put it differently, probabilism creates the possibility of an ideology of progress. Yeah, right, right. Now, I think that the... That the occurrence of the debates surrounding vacuums and mm. this is not a um, coincidence. In other words, there's a kind of logic, logical connection. Mm-hmm. Within voids, we can talk about probabilities. When, mm. we, when we fully understand, say, a continuum, something that's... F- now, the, the question is, is, can you fully understand it? That's mm-hmm. the question. So it's a question of what you know, not yeah. what... And, and to be fair, the medievals recognized that. They recognized that we were finite beings with finite minds and we were never going to have an infinite degree of knowledge. That doesn't mean we can't have objectively true knowledge. Though. Right. Yeah. About a limited number of things. But, yeah. but, you, but you also see a shift here, and I don't know how to put my, ante- you know, my finger on it. <laughs> I got a kind of antenna for it. But it's, it's asking a different question. I mean, the classical figures understood fully well the question of being was at the heart of what they were up to. With Pascal and Descartes and everyone else, it's not the question of being, it's a question of knowing. Um, you have already made the shift, which I think marks modernity, the shift from, from ontology to epistemology. Well, you think about the creeds, Yeah. and think about the Westminster Confession of Faith. Yeah. Where yeah. do they start? Yeah. The, the creeds start with God. Yeah. The Westminster Confession of Faith starts with the Bible. Bible. The Bible. Yeah. The epistemology, yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and I think that was, I mean, you saw the birth pangs of it with the Reformation, um, but I, I really think it spills over into, to, I mean, what's got, well, it's part of a shared milieu with, with the Renaissance and, and what else is going on. But there is this question, I think, this, this break between ontology or being and, and epistemology that didn't exist before. And I, I have my own problems with that. I don't think there needs to be a break. That right. tells me how dated I am. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I'll, I'll yeah. do you one better here. Yeah. The yeah. Classically, metaphysics was considered really the starting point for yeah. all philosophy. Yes. Right. Because yeah. the question, what is real, has to be answered before you can ask the question, what can you know? It has right. to be. Because you can't know anything if it isn't, doesn't exist. Yeah. You can't even know that there's something to know. Right. I mean, so, it's, it's... And yeah. yet, in, in the modern world... Metaphysics, those kinds of questions are, are yeah. considered, you know, by a lot of philosophers irrelevant, yeah. um, trivial or whatever, um, or so speculative as to be useless, and instead you hit epistemology. That's right. In ontology, in metaphysics, now goes, instead of the handmaid of theology, if you will, or, or, or kind of setting, setting the, the, the reality conditions for, for all knowing and being, um, what you end up getting is, is sort of ontology at most is nothing more than a constructed case, probabilistically, of what must be the case in order for me to know anything at all and know things. And so really, you're, you're on the most fragile, fragile ground at that point. I mean, Descartes knew it was fragile. That's why he had to start appealing to ontological arguments the way he did. Um, but I mean, really what you get I mean, I, I always said there was a kind of, I always use, the, I use a theological metaphor here. There was, a, there was a reiteration of the fall that happens in the Enlightenment. And it is that whole question, well, did God say? How do you know this is yeah. the case? Yeah, one way to kind, yeah. of, to kind of summarize that is we think about where does knowledge start in the Bible? It yeah. starts with God's self-disclosure. I am. Yeah. Who are you? Yeah. Now, who should I say sent me? Tell them, I am sent you. And then Descartes, I think therefore I am. So... The shifting yes. from the maker to, to yeah. the creature yeah. uh, is the, the, the problem. And now the ground of knowledge is shaky because we're finite. Yeah. Uh, we, we pass away. And um, then the question becomes, well, how do we get outside of our heads? How, yeah. do, we, how do we go? See, how do we now, go? 
this is this is something I more or less skipped over. There are at least four different elements that are in place in the 16th century that set all of this up. Uh, you know, I mentioned that uh, there was a kind of crisis in the uh, the uh, early 17th century intellectually. Uh, it involved the Renaissance. It involved the Reformation, the wars of religion. It involved the New World. Um, all of these things create serious problems for intellectual life, hmm. which is why epistemology starts becoming so central. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the Renaissance, they were so successful in their push to recover ancient texts with the assumption that they all had to agree with each other because right. they are old and therefore they're closer to the source of truth, so there's got to be a way of harmonizing them. Right. The problem is there wasn't. Right. That raises massive questions about intellectual methodology, if nothing else. Right. Yeah. The New World raised huge questions about biblical history in the sense that, you know, I, I refer to this as the problem of armadillos. Um, <laughs> the, you know, they you, are a problem. You, you have, you, you, you have Especially only, around here. Joke, <laughs> <laughs> joke. You, you, you have only a certain amount of space on the ark. What happens when you suddenly discover a whole bunch of new species over in the new world? Mm -hmm. How do they fit? Um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth gave us the three groups of people out there. Shem, the Middle East, uh, right. uh, Ham, Africa, Japheth, uh, Eurasia. And that's not where, Ken Ham for those in the audience. Where, where did the Native Americans come from? Right. Um, or what about biblical ethics? You mean all these tens of millions of people lived here for so long without ever hearing the gospel, which means they're all damned to hell? What kind of God would do that? Yeah. Yeah, so this raises important historical, theological, right. and anthropological questions. Right. Then you get the Reformation and the wars of religion. Even if you assume Christianity is true, which pretty much everybody in Europe did, which one? Right. And then you add Pyrrho. Right. So for, so for all of these reasons, epistemology emerges as central. It has to do really with the situation that's occurring more broadly in the historical and cultural context. Now, one of the things, though, that I think sometimes gets obscured in all this is um, the way the ancients understood reason. So there is a kind of, uh, there's a kind of assumption that's operating with someone like Descartes yeah. or even Pascal. That wouldn't be the case. That wouldn't right. be the case for the ancients. That's right. So they understood reason as being something that exists, sort of suffused throughout reality, which was logos, and that when you tap into it, then you are tapping into reason in the capital R sense, not right. in terms of what you're subjectively. So, yeah. like, so oftentimes when someone will say, you know, the noetic effects of the fall mean that we can't think clearly. Well, does it? That doesn't mean that reason itself yeah. is corrupted. What that means is that your ability to tap into reason is corrupted. That, that's right. That's a, there's a huge difference yeah. between those two things. Which is, which is why spiritual, yeah, spiritual purity and the capacity to know were so connected with the, with the early church. You look at the earliest, right? It wasn't merely they were adopting Plato unreflectively. No, they understood that the virtues required to wean off of idolatry and have one's loves reordered meant you could begin to see those things the way that, that, the way that they are. I mean, you know, like Paul, the invisible attributes of God in created or are clearly seen. Okay, you can't get more epistemologically clear and distinct from that. And there's okay. a tying together of the ontos and That's the right. epistemology there. That's right. The, and the, the, the ontology, um, God, man, yeah, and the create. And, and what you notice, I mean, Genesis actually gives you it straight, straight away, right? And, and of course, John's gospel later. But, but I mean, Genesis gives you in the beginning, God. The ontological reality determines all things, and the source, uh, the infinite logos, that infuses all things. Orders the creation. Creation then is the medium through which we know the eternal logos and the nature of the reality itself. And then we are participants in this as the, the distinct creature made in the image of God and a creature to be able to, to read them both. And this is why the scripture tells us the fool says in his heart there is, there is no, no God. God. He's That's not in touch with reason, reason in the and, objective and capital R sense. And the, or the philosophers that reason is a participating in the, the, the reality order 
and the 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 logical order or informational order that 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 is there. I mean, look. I mean, I, I think someone who came close to it that but missed it ultimately was um, Einstein. Hmm. I mean, Einstein was son that said there there is. He used mathematics, but he said there is unequivocally a rational order inherent in matter itself that is discernible and knowable, and he wants to know it. He could, what he couldn't fathom is how this reality could be personal as well. That's the thing. That's, that, that was the big scandal. That was the, that was the huge scandal. Um, but, but, I mean, this, was, this is a very different sense. I mean, this is, someone, this is someone whose your mind is able to know reality because it is able to participate. It has a correspondence, if you will, a capacity um, in it to be able to conform itself to the way reality is and therefore share something about it. This is very different than what comes with epistemological thinking where you become sort of the categorical framework. You, right. you become the, the, the basically the rubber stamp that right. imposes your mind's capacity onto reality. Right. In other words, one thing is I let's put it maybe a different way. I don't know if the, these metaphors are working good. One is to suffer reality. The other is is poesis, where you construct it. Right. Classical vision is you suffer it long before you you put your stamp on it. The new view is you put your stamp on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you don't have it apart from putting your stamp on it. And I think that's the difference. I mean, you, we suffer something divine means we undergo the reality of God before we actually turn around and, and put our... Now, we are sub-creators. Yeah. That's the challenge. Well, we're involved with yeah. it. We're Poesis. genuinely involved. That's where we get the word poet, yeah. poetic. But we're actualized by that reality rather than the actualizers of it. Yep. Yeah. I, I'm with you 100%. Yeah. But then there is a, a sense still in which we have some measure of freedom. Well, when that when we are actualized by it, we are actualized, and then therefore we give something. Yep. And so we are a part of its of, of its reality too. That's where I think the modern world was right. Yeah. We yep. are a part of 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 the. We're part of the story. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. We have we have a say, and that's where I think the world of suspicion is okay because we have a part to say in it. But we're fallen, and we need to be looked at. Yeah. You know, you're actually yeah. going back yeah. to the 12th century. Uh, I and, always and, am. And, and conceivably <laughs> earlier, where um, the one of the key things in I talked about Platonic humanism. Yeah. Um, the last episode, I I was the the topic person for. Um, I don't know what to call. <laughs> no, that. We should figure out um, a name for I that. Think I'll have, I, I think I'll have another beer. Um, <laughs> the, You're the, just starting, Glenn. Yeah, yeah, but I'm a lightweight. Um, <laughs> But um, it, it, they, one of the things that they noted is that humanity is part of nature, but also analyzes nature. Yeah, that's the it, thing. It, 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 we're, we're simultaneously part of it, but also we, we participate in it, but we also analyze it, we think about it, we reason on it. Yeah. And so we're part of the system that we're always looking at. And, right. and that, yeah. that complexity is yeah. something that they, they absolutely delighted in, actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and this is where subcreation comes in, and this is where the yeah. naming of the animals with Adam comes in. I mean, oh, that's there, right. is, there is this sense in which, I think it was Irenaeus, wasn't it, who said that uh, there's a sense in which there's a, uh, the creation is incomplete, and uh, we are here to perfect it. And we see this in, in Romans 8 with Paul. And, um, but the idea that, that there's something for us to do, something for us to contribute, um, it's not uh, a contribution that starts from zero, though. That's right. It's but this, and I guess that's what which bring, brings me back to, the, I, I think, the symbolic power of the vacuum. Yeah. Because <laughs> for the, va the vacuum is, the, is about zero. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so where do we get zero from? I wasn't at the. Doesn't it come into us from it from India? Wasn't it? Uh, ultimately India? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, that wasn't something that was Western. It was it was an import. The idea of zero via the Muslim world. Yeah, of course, everything. And that's where we got zero <laughs> sum. No. <laughs> well, but no, but I do think that there is something to that. Yeah. I do yeah. think there is something yeah. to that. I do think that there are a, a range of uh, associations and connections that. We're just beginning to kind of get a sense of, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, we, we could pat ourselves on the back 
for making you know certain discoveries uh, that make our lives today you know more comfortable, uh, more fruitful, whatever. I, just this morning, I was thanking God for eyeglasses. <laughs> you know, I mentioned Spinoza a little I while need to ago. Get a, new you know, pair. a guy who was a, who was a lens grinder. <laughs> you know, they, it, it, this is a marvelous invention. It is. You know, if we didn't have that, where would we be? Where would I be? Yeah. And, and do you know why they developed eyeglasses originally? <laughs> Give me the insight. You're the historian. This is why Ulti Glenn is with it. Ultimately, eyeglasses were invented in the 14th century. Yeah. Okay. And that came about because they were really, really interested in optics. Yep, yep. And the reason they were interested in optics is that optics is the branch of physics that is most closely connected to epistemology. Yeah, light. You're, you're because, you know, we sight. talk about illumination right, uh, yeah. biblically but, and in otherwise. That, it, all of those things are, you know, right. optics are critical. And right. it's interesting that they still had illumination, light, and epistemology related. I don't think that, you know, that's something that's far gone. On, but I mean that would I mean Augustine's whole point, you know, open your eyes, you see; mm -hmm. um, close your eyes, you don't. And, and this whole notion of being illumined by reality. But see, the old notion of epistemology—that's it. You're you need to see because you're participating in a reality that's there. You're being illumined by. Yeah, that's, you, that's very different than you being the engine for the illumination. Yeah, in the old days, you know the. Um, you know, they would say, I've seen the light, which yeah. would mean, you know, a conversion. You know, I've seen the light. Uh, I don't know if I've come across a single person who says that today. But you know, and you know what? It's interesting. I, I was just checking a digital theology online, some one of the tools I have from one of the schools I teach at. But there is a dissertation that just came out. I, I need to get all the title. Maybe we'll do a show. But it's literally um, looking at the, the doctrine of God in 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 light of God being light. Yeah. And I think it's one of the most beautiful images to me, theologically, is the notion of God as light. Yeah. Um, in, in him, and there is no darkness at all. Um, I, I think that imagery connected to, of course, the whole philosophical and theological tradition. Edwards was huge on it. Now, well, one of the things I've, I've wondered about is the fact that the speed limit of the universe appears to be the speed of light. In other words, it's the standard by which we uh, can be said to, to communicate, to move, and so forth. I remember one time I thought that we had gotten around this with spooky uh, movement at a distance or spooky connections at a distance. You know what I'm talking about, yeah. quantum physics and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then I was corrected. I said, well, doesn't this mean that we can communicate in a, mean, in a, in a way that's faster than light? in my sort of crude, you know, non-scientific sort of inferring of the, you know, what this meant. And then a physicist told me, no. <laughs> no, no we'd still have the speed limit. Back, in, back at Michigan State, there was a bumper sticker that said, 186,000 miles per second. It's not just a good idea, it's the law. <laughs> but you see, but that's my point. You know, when we talk about the theory of relativity, we could be describing the, the, the truth of an absolute standard. Mm -hmm. Everything is relative to light and its speed. Mm -hmm. And then we don't really know what light is. It appears to be a wave. It appears to be a particle. What are we talking about? Is it both? Is it one thing? Is it the other? It seems to behave in waves that seem to indicate that it, it's one thing at one moment and another thing at another time. But, it's, but Yeah, but it's, it's, I mean, it's range of reference. It's range of metaphor, of course. Oh, yeah. But the way in which, yeah, it, it is an impenetrable reality and that you need it to shed light on everything. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and it's it, the it, first thing made. Yeah. Let there be light. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, and I'm going to once again go back to the Middle Ages. Um, the entire point in a lot of ways of Gothic cathedrals was to figure out a technology that would channel the weight of the roof away from the walls so that they were not structural. And the reason you wanted the walls to not be structural is so that you could open them up to windows, stained glass, and light. Right, right. Yeah, that, that brings me back to something I've, we've talked about at different times in different shows, and the idea that creativity doesn't work best with a blank set of pages, with a blank page, that constraints have a way of forcing us to explore maybe ways of doing things, knowing things that are not easy, but because it's the only place where we get any yield, things yield to us in any way, we force ourselves to you know, pursue knowledge, pursue making, poesis, 
in those areas. So the, the question is, how do we create this vaulted structure that allows us to do things with light or see light in ways that help us know God? And that forces the, the, the breakthrough in terms of people start experimenting. Maybe if we try this, maybe if we try that. Next thing you know, you've got flying, but, you know, flying buttresses and stuff. So forth. Now, the interesting thing, by the way, is that it was believed into the 18th century that light didn't operate the way we think of it as operating. Yeah. That light actually came from the eyes and touched things. Thine eyes diffused they, a quickening ray. Right, exactly. Yep. That's where that, that line comes from. Right. It, it, the, that, that they didn't have a, they didn't think of it as the light coming out and reaching our eyes. Mm -hmm. They thought about our eyes reaching out and touching something. Yeah, which seems to be, I think, the assumption underlying, if thine eye be single, mm -hmm. you know, you, your body is full of light. But if it's not, then, right. you know, your body is full of darkness. Mm. I think that this, that plays That's into a, that. that. It probably does, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but this is this is marvelous stuff. We we should probably start kind of bringing it in. Is there anything that uh, you would, you know when you thought about the subject of this show today, Glenn? You said this is one of the things I want to get across, and we've got gotten there yet. Well, the the main thing is that uh, you know I as a historian, I, I just sort of love going through how we got places, right? And. Uh, the the core idea that I really wanted to get to was what I said. This entire idea of progress emerges out of a change in epistemology that, from Pascal, ironically enough, who was a, a, as a, a really serious believing Christian. Yeah. Nonetheless, he ended up setting the groundwork for the entire modern program, mm. which is going to end up turning its back on Christianity. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And it, it came about from this fundamental change in something that mm. seems rather trivial mm. um, um, uh, until you start thinking through the implications of it. Yeah. Modernity, progress, all of those things, which we have now turned away from. Mm, We've now right. turned our backs on them. Right. But all of those things, Star Trek, right. you know, they're right. all really a consequence of... Pascal, Pascal. is the father of Star Trek. Yeah, I like, it. I like it. Ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, you know, the, the ideology of Star Trek is, is progress. Oh, sure. Oh, yep. definitely. Yeah, yeah. And yep. that really, all of that stuff goes back to that change. Yeah. If if if, if listeners have not had a chance to read Pascal's thoughts or Ponce, um, yeah. they ought to. Um, marvelous stuff there, and it's, and it's challenged many of the brightest people, you know, uh, in the course of history. I remember we, we were talking about. Uh, uh, Schopenhauer, yeah, a couple of episodes back, and uh, he was so bitter about Pascal because he felt like Pascal was uh, more or less the proof or the ref refutation of his entire outlook. At that, that this this great mind was corrupted by the Jansenists. Jansenists. <laughs> and and he, he is he is another I mean great mind. Wittgenstein's um, oh, yeah. philosophical investigations follow the the style. Of uh, of Pascal, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's rich stuff, and and I encourage listeners. So he he had been collecting these thoughts, just sort of witticisms, sort of uh, epigrammatic things. So Wittgenstein found a stylistic methodology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I and, that. and it was it was published after his death. His goal was to bring it all together into a coherent whole right. uh, as a, a work of apologetics, but he just died too young. Right, right. Um, now, Peter Kraft has put together a his own organization of the Pensee huh. uh, where he tries to bring out where he thinks Pascal was going. Going, okay. Well, that's, that's, that's I, I'd like, do you remember the book that, that Kraft wrote about that? I'd like to see it. I, I have it uh, at probably in my office, but I don't remember the title off the top of my head. Yeah, he, you know, people like uh, Pascal are like the, the, the sort of the speed bumps of atheism because mm -hmm. you can't really just pass over that guy and just yeah. write him off considering all the things. And his conversion, if you're familiar with it, is as richly sort of uh, biblical as any conversion you could hope for in the sense that um, and he carried uh, with him in his uh, lining of his coat 
uh, his diary entry of the, from the day he uh, was when he, the day he saw the light or saw the, the fire. I night should of say. fire. Hmm. The night of fire. You want to explain to our listeners what that was? Um, he he refers to it. He just I, I I don't remember the exact beginning of it, but it just ends up with the word fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, and and he does a number right. of other. Um, and not the God of the philosophers to, to, to that, you right. know, but but he describes the whole thing just in terms of encountering a blazing fire. Yeah, you know, and, and he, I think it's it's God is, you know, in a uh, uh, a consuming fire. Consuming fire. Yeah. And the word joy written seventy times mm-hmm. after that line, and he carried that with him for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, we encourage. Uh, podcast listeners, podcast listeners to uh, get into uh, Pascal a little more. We should probably wrap it up here. Um, it's been great to have you listening to the show. If you listen to us on a platform where you're able to give us a rating, we, at, we encourage you to give us a good rating. <laughs> and uh, we also want you to know that we do appreciate all the folks who give on a regular basis to the show. Uh, we don't spend a lot of time asking for money, and uh, people give it to us anyway, and we're very grateful for that, and it does help us a lot. Uh, if you uh, feel inspired, you can give to us through your podcast platform or through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Anyway, that's enough for now. Why don't we say goodbye? Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye now. Bye now.